Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, hosted by, I'm told, uh, the LSE Department of Sociology. Um, shout out over there. Uh, which forms part of the LSE's seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival taking place all this week with the theme Foundations. I'm Isabella Kaminska. I'm from FT Alphaville. Um, I, it's a blog at the FT, uh, Financial Times, and uh, I'll be chairing this event. Um, so I'm going to introduce the panel. Our first speaker will be Tom Huckenhall, who is a curator of at the British... Okay, I should just point out that they've given me this script, and I don't think they realise that I'm actually dyslexic, so I can't read very well. <laughs> but I'm going to try, so bear with me. Just ad lib. Yeah. Ad lib, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I will ad lib, okay. So, um, Tom Hockenhall, he's curator at the British Museum, and he's just written a book called Symbols of Power, Ten Coins That Changed the World. He is going to speak about iconography and the symbolism of money. He's going to be followed by Nikki Marsh, who works in the English department at the University of Southampton. She works on late 20th and 21st century British and American literatures, theories of gender, postmodernism, poetics, and economics. Her published works include Money, Finance, and Speculation in Contemporary British Fiction, Democracy in U U.S. Women's Poetry, and Edited and she has edited the collection of literature and globalization. She's also the co-curator of the exhibition Show Me the Money, the Image of Finance, 1700 to the Present, which is touring through 2014 to 2015. Well, 2015 now. She will be speaking about the visual histories of credit and debt. Um, <clears throat> our third speaker is Nigel Dodd, or what I prefer to call LSE's own Yanis Varoufakis. Um, <laughs> professor... <laughs> Professor in the sociology department here we'll at LSE. Down, no. <laughs> it's 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 uncanny. Let's face it. Um, <laughs> Nigel's main interests are in the sociology of money, economic sociology, and classical and contemporary social thought. He is the author of a really great book called *The Sociology of Money and Social Theory and Modern*. Oh, that, not that one. <laughs> His new that book, the other book, <laughs> which is the one I've read, uh, *The Social Life of Money*, which was published in 2014. He's going to be telling us why money matters to our identity. And last but not least, we've got the um, <laughs> unique David Birch, a thought leader in his own right in the world of all things currency payments, and and payment technology. He, he provides consultancy support to clients around the world, including all of the leading payment brands, major te telecommunication providers, government bodies, and international organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations. Just a few announcements. For those of you who use Twitter, be sure to use the hashtag LSE LitFest. Um, I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Um, the event is being recorded, so don't do anything you would regret, presumably, David. Um, the, <laughs> simply, I'm sure David will point out the story. Um, the event is being yeah, I've said that, uh, and there will be a podcast available um, subject to no technical difficulties. After the discussion, there will be a chance to put your questions to the panel, uh, and there's a drinks re reception with Tom, Nigel, and Nikki's books. Oh, they, they will be on sale and they'll be happy to uh, sign copies. Anyway, let's get on. Um, why don't we start with Tom? Thank you very much, Isabella. 
Uh, my name is Tom Hotnell. I am curator of modern money at the British Museum in the Department of Coins and Medals. My latest book is entitled Symbols of Power, Ten Coins That Changed the World. It's about numismatics, what E.H. Carr called uh, the auxiliary science of history. And one of my ex-colleagues recently referred to as telling stories through small, boring things. Well, these small, boring things take centre stage in my book which, superficially at least, uh, uses its starting point, ten monetary terms, beginning with the biblical shekel and finishing with the dollar. And it sort of tells a potted history of money through these, through, through these ten uh, currency terms. That, superficially at least, is the, the structure of the book. But if we talk around and across these chapters, more general themes begin to emerge about monetary history, namely that pretty much for as long as money has been around, and I don't refer here to to coined money, I refer to uh, really the history of money um, from the the earliest use of of precious metals um, about 5,000 years ago to, to measure monetary value. People, societies, issuers have sought to imbue the, the currency with symbolic meaning and to build up these layers of meaning that will uh, necessarily engage uh, traders, uh, merchants, anyone who happens to use money to, uh, to trust um, the, the, the currency. Um, without using... Uh, visual images um, to illustrate my point. Um, I didn't want to do that because we're being recorded. Um, perhaps I can use the best analogy of, 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 a, of a currency or a, an object with which you're probably all familiar. So take, for example, uh, something that's in your pockets, like, like a pound coin. And I want to perhaps just dissect that one object now to, to illustrate how Generally speaking, these layers of meaning don't just appear overnight. They evolve over centuries, if not millennia. So let's take the pound coin. Think about the imagery, in the first instance, that is on the coin. On the head of the coin, you have the monarch, you have the queen. Now, this use of a single figure to, um, to, to put onto the coinage is something that has been happening since time immemorial, um, however, the tradition of actually using a figurehead um, like the monarch or a ruler or an emperor really derives from uh, the Roman world. And when I say Roman world, strictly speaking, I don't mean the Roman Republic because Roman Republican tradition was averse to the use of portraiture on coins. What I refer to is the Roman Empire, specifically the first instance of a politician specifically choosing to put their image on the coin just Julius Caesar in 44 BC. He was stabbed to death a few months later on the floor of the Senate on the, on the eyes of March, just showing just in a way how, how far that one coin demonstrates the extent to which the whole political situation of Rome had been changed irrevocably and it is demonstrated through this one coin. Let's return to the pound coin. Let's talk about the edge of the coin, um, a variety of inscriptions that are on the, on the coin. Um, specifically, I refer to the Latin inscription Decus et Tutamen, which is on British pound, on the English, um, sorry, pound coin. 
That means a decoration and a safeguard against what? It has no meaning in the present until one realises that it's actually reproduced from the five guinea piece of the 1660s. And it means a decoration and safeguard against the edges of the coin being clipped. So it's a throwback again to a period when coin was made from a precious metal and therefore it had value and you wanted to protect the edges of coin from being filed down and the money being, sorry, the, the gold being, being melted down and turned into something else. Let's look at the, the shape of the coin. It's round. Well, coins have been round for a very, very long period of time, but that's in the Western tradition of coinage. Just to illustrate just how uh, revolutionary this was to, to, to another another society. If we look at the development of Japanese coinage in the, uh, in the mid-19th century, we realise that round wasn't the standard uh, shape or size at all. And in fact, um, when, when Japan was forcibly opened up to overseas trade and had to introduce a new currency to engage in overseas trade, um, it had to emulate Western traditions of coinage, which is, and it was so, so revolutionary that they decided to name their, their new currency yen, meaning round, um, after the shape of this new currency. Returning to the pound coin, the, even the, 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 the colour of it is symbolic because it, um, certainly when it's new from the mint, it has this golden hue to it, which is a direct throwback to the sovereigns of the... Um, of the early to mid and late 19th century. And actually, the early designs of the, um, uh, for the pound coin in the 1970s produced by Christopher Ironside even uh, reproduced the imagery of that pound sovereign in the shape of um, George slaying the dragon. So that just gives you one example of many where imagery, iconography, design, shape, material gets recycled and reused, regardless of who the issuer is, who the issuing authority. And I think we have to bear in mind that the issuing authority isn't always a, um, a central bank or anything like that. That's a kind of, sort of 19th century nation-state notion. Actually, money has typically been issued by all sorts of people. It's been issued by emperors, emperors in exile. It's been issued by kings. It's been issued by banks. It's been issued by guilds, by towns, by cities and by, by temples. So um, I think that kind of draws my introduction to the book uh, to, to a close. Um, Thank you, Tom. That was fascinating, um, especially for me, because I studied Asian history, so it was great. Um, have you got a clicker, Isabella? Oh, a slide. I think maybe there's one here. Thank you. <laughs> Let me move the slide as well, because otherwise my head... Um, so I work in um, an English department... So I'm interested in money. I'm interested in the cultural images, languages and narratives for money. I'm really interested in what our metaphors for money tell us about what money means. And I, the, the things I want to talk about all come from this exhibition, Show Me the Money, which is opening in Manchester in June. And that will be its last, that's its, that's that its last place where it's going to be for them to go. And I want to think of money in a very different way to Tom. I don't want to think of money in terms of coinage, or not at least only in terms of coinage. I want to think of money as a form of credit, and this is what Nigel has elegantly described as one of money's originary myths. So instead of seeing the prehistory of money as being in barter and money replacing barter, lots of economic sociologists, economic historians, anthropologists now think of money really as having its origins in a system of tabulation. 
that what money is, it's a system of credits and it's a system of debts. And it's that record of credits and debts that then become recirculated that allows them to act as money because the debt and the credit pass between people and they become a form of money, which is, as Tom says, how banks can produce money. So to see money as a series of credits and debts allows us to see the hierarchies within money between creditors and debtors in new ways, I think, and to open up the social relationships and the possibilities of seeing money as a credit and a debt. And one of the most obvious things, the thing I really want to begin with saying, is that um, debt goes down and credit goes up. And I kind of want to look at that, and I've got a series of images, I want to think about that in terms of visual images, but also in terms of narrative to some extent at some extent. So we can see one of the kind of classic images which we always begin with is from the 18th century, which is Hogarth's Awake's Progress in 1735. And the image of the debtor's prison, the darkened image of the debtor's prison that Hogarth has, is typical of how we see debt. We see debt as, um, as a prison, as a literal prison, but also as a metaphorical prison. We see it as debasing. We see it, as Margaret Atwood said, as a swamp as a prison, as something that we get into and as something we have to climb out of. Whereas the language for debt is the language of imprisonment, of embarrassment, the language of shame. The language for credit is the opposite. The language for credit is the language of confidence. It is the language of ascendancy. It is the language of pleasure. And the the language of credit is particularly the language of flight. And they're the metaphors I really want to think about. Bet, about debt as debasing, debt as grounded, and credit as ascendant, credit as a kind of flight. And I want to just kind of trace those through three different kinds of credit money, give you three different images of money that show that dichotomy and the way that dichotomy does and doesn't work in different historical moments. So the first one, as I said, I'm going to start with the financial revolution. I'm going to start with Hogarth. And what we see in his... Um, his engravings, his pictures about the financial revolution, is we see the founding of the Bank of England, we see the issuing um, of state money, and a constant anxieties in Hogarth's work about paper money. And paper money is, of course, always a debt. It's a redemption of, of government debt, according to chartalist theories of money. What's interesting in these images of Hogarth's is that we see both in the debtor's prison, which is the image in the foreground, and then the image in the, back, in the background is the last image which is of Bedlam, is we see the images of debt here are tied to credit in different ways. So in the first image, Tom is completely debased, he's in prison, he's surrounded by evidence of his shame, he's surrounded by evidence of the, of the women he's ruined, and yet what he's being offered are systems of credit, which are represented as a kind of madness. So on one of the pieces of paper, and you can't see it here, but on one of the pieces of paper there's a, there's a reference to the South Sea Scheme of 15 years earlier, of a system to pay off the nation's debt. And the same is true even further. When, rake, when the, our rake, Tom, gets further into debt and ends up in, in Bedlam, he goes mad, he loses his mind. The people around him are still conjuring with new systems of credit. So we've got that astronomer drawing on the wall. And as Hogarth rewrote that engraving, or he re-engraved that, he turned that alchemical image of astronomy that the mad people were conjuring with into a coin. So that sense of right in that moment of credit, with these kind of typical notions of credit as debasement, what Hogarth also gives us is images of credit, of flight above it. And they're represented as, as a madness for Hogarth. But the sense of the 18th century that we see images of credit and images of debt together in some way goes on to other very iconic images, such as Gilray's William Pitt, the National Parachute, right from the beginning of the 19th century. So we have here the very modish image of the hot air balloon, 
sort of relatively new kind of transport then and very fashionable at that moment. And the hot air balloon is holding debt and credit in a kind of contradictory balance. So the balloon carries the sinking fund, which the surplus from the government um, budget set, set aside to pay the debt, and yet it's elevated by the interest on the debt. So the, the credit and the debt are held together by this balloon. What I'm interested in is the way in which this complexity of these images, what these images show is a negotiation between creditor and debtor and the way in which they're played off against each other. What I'm interested in is the way in which that negotiation slips away from a later language of credit in particular. So I'm going to leap forward to another kind of credit money entirely, and that's the, that's the credit money of personal debt that really began as another kind of financial revolution in the 1920s and 30s, in which people were able to access institutional forms of personal credit through, through store credit in the first instance and then through credit cards. Store credit in the 20s and 30s, credit cards in the 40s, 50s and 60s. In, um, and Louis Hyman's detonation kind of describes this. What I'm interested in these images is that credit, again, is still associated with flight. Credit is still associated with a modish new form of transport. But it's associated now with pleasure, with possibilities. And those kind of negotiations, those worrying things in the Gilway and the Hogarth have been kind of cleared away. What credit becomes associated with in these images, this is a postcard from 1925, is a libidinized pleasure. A nice pleasure that's it's interesting, of course, that it's a woman. Not surprising, it's a woman flying a plane. And the way in which women and femininity are engaged in credit in, this, in the middle of the kind of 20th century is very interesting in itself. Because what we have is we have credit being feminised in specific ways and not in ways that are sometimes at odds with the way in which women themselves were engaging with this credit. So on the one hand, credit was taken up by women. Lendl Calder suggests 80% of credit was taken up by women because it was women who, was, who were consuming, it was women who were managing the domestic household economy. And so some of the adverts specifically addressed women. This is an advert from 1950s from TSB. From TSB. It's in a really lovely series. There's two others, and one of them, a woman's a trapeze artist, and in the other, she's a ballet dancer. So these images of, of flight are, are very kind of clear, the, in the flightlessness of the woman's body here. This is actually an advert for, for a woman's bank account. So the financial industry was acknowledging that women were saving, that women were entering the financial services and had specific financial services um, kind of provided for them. And yet the language of credit itself was feminised in ways that suggested that it was interpolating a male buyer rather than a female buyer. And the Barclays Card campaign from 1972 is a wonderful example of this. So the Barclays Card campaign from 1972 dressed up these um, kind of bank tellers in ways I think that suggested they were air hostesses, um, but in a really kind of 70s way. So some of the, um, so some of the again, the women are kind of constantly, on, they, they did road shows, they went out in public, but they had these kind of, they had buses with the Barclays colours, and they had these really small, horrible 70s-looking kind of caravans that these women would come out of, looking very glamorous. But the idea that what was being sold here was, again, gl glamour, associations with travel, associations with a kind of libidinous feminized notion of credit was often just made explicit in a much darker way. So there's another advert for the 1970s which has got a man with two women leaning on him and the, and the strap line is one in 20 man has a different kind of spending power. <laughs> and then behind him you've got, 20, you've got the other 20 men who are completely faceless and have no women. 
because they don't don't have a credit card. Um, And another advert shows a woman shopping, and she's smiling, and she looks very kind of cheery, and obviously she's got the credit card. And the strap line is, your wife deserves some credit. So I think we're we're in in different ways here, the the relation to credit and femininity is working. The last moment I want to talk about very briefly is our moment. This is the moment in which credit, we have a different kind of credit money. Instead of seeing that, the credit money that's produced by the state, the paper money, or the credit money that's produced by the consumer industry, the store credit and the Barclay cards, we see the credit that Ole Berg has described as post-credit money. Money issued not by states, not by the consumer industries, but by the self-referential processes of financialization themselves, in which the money economy is making money for itself, and its relationship to the productive economy or its relationship to the state has, has disappeared. What we see in these images of credit... We see the same images again. We see the balloon again. We see the water slide, this image of um, a flight. But what happens is that any relationship to, to the debt, that, 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 that sinking, the sinking fund, the relationship to the debt that's in the, that's in the Hogarth and the Gilway, has completely disappeared. We get a kind of self-referential notion of credit that's fast, that's fun, it's pleasurable, but there's no debt here at all. I mean, I really like... Um, I really like the Barclay card slide because it seems to be taking this image of the water slide just spinning through the city. It seems to be a play on those kind of 19th century images of, of credit as being the lifeblood of the economy that serves the organs. What we've got here is we've got this, it's not blood anymore that's circulating, it's just water and it's not leaving the city. It's not going anywhere, it's going up and down and up and down and round and round. So that's a, a very kind of attractive advert that's still running, I think, for Barclay card, but we can read it in terms of this longer history that it's calling attention to this kind of self-referential nature of credit. There's no, there's no relationship to the economy in these, um, in these adverts. Christian de Kock did a, um, a really nice survey in 2007-2008 of the adverts, of the way in which the financial adverts are being used across the crisis. And he suggested that this language of, that this language of escape, this language of flight, was being used not only in the obvious examples of the credit cards, but in the advertising of financial companies too, when he suggested that consulting partners are shown walking and talking on a platform or, flower or floor that towers above the towers. The, the city itself was a tower above the tower. It was without any base at all. Finally, I want to just think about the ways in which this loss of debt from the, the loss of debt from our narratives of credit has been approached by <coughs> artists, by critical artists, since the, since the financial crash. And I want to just give two examples here, um, and both of which are in the exhibition. One is the artist Thomas Gokey. I don't know if any of you know Gokey's work. Gokey was part of the strike debt and the Rolling Jubilee mo- movement. And Goki took his, the value of his um, MFA, $49,983, he got it in used currency, and he pulped it, which is also a kind of reference to the way in which if we pay off a debt, we destroy that money. This, if this credit money is made, then we're, by paying off that debt, we make it that kind of paradoxical thinking that's attached to this form of credit. Goki literalizes really, really nicely, but what Goki also does is he reminds us of the baseness, the physicality of his debt, of these banknotes that the, the credit card images are far away from. And I like the fact that he's kind, of, he's kind of karate chopping over them in that image. The other image which you might have seen, which um, we had to condense this actually to send it across, so this isn't a very good uh, reproduction, I'm sorry about that, is Molly Crabapple's Debt and Her Debtors. And Crabapple emerged apparently as the artist of Occupy. Um, and we, we brought this over from the States for the exhibition. It's just gone back. Into, and it's actually a very, very kind of glorious, glorious um, oil painting when we can see it. But what's interesting about here 
is that, is that Crabapple is returning us to the traditions of Hogarth, which is where I want to kind of end. She's returning us to remembering the materiality of that debt. She's satirising the way in which it's been feminised. So in here, debt is figured as a burlesque female torso that's floating above the balloons. But what happens when we look closely is we see that the, the, the mice or the rats climbing up climbing up debt are falling down and being ground back into coins, ground back into money at the bottom of those images. And I'm going to finish there. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's really fascinating. Um, Nigel. Right, thank you. Um, I've got some slides too, I think. No, I haven't. They're not there. There we go. They're there. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because uh, I looked up identity in the index of my book and it's not there. So moment of panic, and uh, it puzzled me actually why why I didn't really talk about identity at all in the book. So that's partly what I'm going to talk about: the absence of identity in in my book, uh, which makes a change because I'm always talking about the book. So it's quite nice to talk about something that's not in the book. Um, and thinking about identity, I think there are two senses um, of identity that are that are on the panel uh, this evening, and and we've had one from Tom and Nikki, which is to do with collective identity. I think. But there's another which I think uh, Dave will talk about, which is to do with, um, uh, with personal identity. And they, they are distinct. Memory ties them together, I think. Personal identity is about leaving traces. Um, collective memory, uh, collective identity is about, is about memory. Um, but we can, we can discuss that maybe, maybe later. But just to give an example of, of the sense of identity that Dave wants to talk about, um, I was on a jury a couple of years ago, and the, the guy... Um, that was uh, in the dock for, for stealing a carton of orange juice, uh, um, hadn't, wasn't able to verify his whereabouts um, because he, t- he, he, he was only ever used cash. Um, and the jury discussions were fascinating because uh, everybody was on the jury, apart from me, uh, was highly suspicious of this guy. They, they, they thought he must be guilty because he only ever used cash. Generally, uh, and, and in a sense, um, our ability to use plastic is, is in a sense, not only a marker of identity, but I think it's a, it's a form of, of verifying us as, as subjects. Uh, so I think um, identity has a kind of fundamental uh, connection um, to what we are um, in, in relation to money. Um, but I think I'd focus more on the notion of collective identity uh, this evening because it kind of comes up really. Um, clearly in, in relation to the euro. But I'm uncomfortable um, with the notion of identity in relation to my own. If pushed, I think I'd say that they're, they're mutually reinforcing. Money can unite as much as it can divide. Um, and as we see with the euro today, it can do both simultaneously. Um, but I want to talk about three kinds of money in relation to identity. One is the euro, another is the Bristol pound or local currency in general. And finally, I can't resist talking about <coughs> Bitcoin a little bit. Um, now the euro is an extraordinary um, experiment Um, it was designed partly to enhance European identity this was the first ECB president uh, making this quite clear Um, here's another from 2000 the the French finance minister saying again this um, this currency is bound to enhance our sense of European identity Identity, and just in case you think, well, that's all gone now because it's um, it's all screwed up. This is from the current EU website. Uh, again, that the euro symbolises uh, everything about European identity, and it, and it forges uh, that sense of commonality in Europe. 
Um, whereas the reality is more like this, really, uh, which is the, the, the back end of, of all Euro banknotes are fictional bridges. And fictional because apparently, uh, and maybe somebody on the panel could confirm this, uh, the designers were, uh, uh, were nervous about people arguing about which the best bridges were. So it was seen as least offensive or something like this. This is what I have been told. Anyway, representing bridges through the ages, through architectures through the ages. Right. Okay. But, they're, but they're, you know, the, the fact that they're not real bridges is, is, is kind of interesting. And then I discovered this guy today, Captain Euro, um, who, who was invented prior to the launch of the Euro as a kind of cartoon figure meant to explain. And uh, and he's just come back to save the Euro. Um, it's a serious um, cartoon figure. Um, but, I mean, in a sense, the Euro is beyond parody, so I, I take this figure very seriously. And I saw a cartoon of him today explaining to David Cameron the word federal. And, and David Cameron had to spell it first, and then he had to define it. Um, and, and so, so this is the kind of um, uh, thing we've got into. Um, but it, it, more seriously, I, I, I went back and, and started to look at um, Eurobarometer, because... because the Europeans try to measure identity in Europe. Um, and, and here's an example of, of, of what they do. And the euro, as you can see, features quite strongly um, in most people's, um, or at least half people's, um, sense of what it is to be, to be European. Um, interestingly, um, if you look at the, uh, the figures about euro support, um, I think fairly predictably, those that are most in favour of the euro still tend to be uh, male, middle class, urban, and well-educated. And I think we can maybe latch on to what Nikki said about gender to, to, to get into that. Um, but in general, um, what's interesting is that support for the euro um, hasn't really changed very much, and nor have attitudes towards uh, Europe itself. Um, you can see here quite a clear north-south divide, but actually, despite everything, um, support and... and uh, the feeling that the euro is a good thing and that membership of the EU is a good thing. It's fairly stable, actually. If you look, that goes way, way before the euro was established and during the years of the euro, uh, that there isn't really much um, that's, uh, that's happened. So my thesis, really, before I move on to the Bristol pound, my, my thesis is that, actually, um, identity um, doesn't really have a, a, a huge <coughs> impact uh, on money and vice versa. They, they reinforce each other, but I don't think they... Uh, identity is, is a particularly important um, aspect of money. I think it gets constructed, and I think it's being constructed now as a form of post hoc explanation uh, for why the euro has gone wrong. Uh, we've had the breakdown of the, the European institutions or, or the, the undermining of the European institutions, such as the ECB, and suddenly it, it becomes a debate about nationalism. Um, but I think on the ground, I don't actually think that, um, that that's that, uh, all that that serious. Um, moving on to the Bristol Pound, um, here again I think we have some fairly remarkable things about identity. If you talk to the designers of the Bristol Pound, you can see their logo, our city, our money. Uh, it's all about uh, a sense of identity. And I think we can, we can take that seriously on one level. I think it's clear from the work of sociologists such as Viviana Zelitzer uh, that people give meaning to money in all sorts of ways and these are related to their identity. But the idea that the Bristol Pound could reinforce 
one's attachments to Bristol, I think is a very similar question, actually, to the idea of, of whether the, the euro can be enforced one's attachment to Europe. I think it's more likely uh, that the Bristol plan will reinforce those who already have a, an attachment to Bristol and already want to uh, participate in the local economy. I don't think it, it has a particularly transformative um, character. Um, moving on. Um, so as with the euro, um, I think the relationship between a local currency and local identities is, is also extremely difficult to measure, um, uh, and I don't think it's uh, as uh, crucial uh, to whether the Bristol pound succeeds as uh, some people would allege. Um, Bitcoin is my final example, and I think Bitcoin moves us away from collective identity onto issues about personal identity. Um, and I think Dave would have something to say about this, but Bitcoin appeals to people precisely because it appears to sever the link between money and identity. It's like a, a kind of a super efficient form of cash. Um, and on the positive side, Bitcoin appeals to people precisely because it frees them from what they regard as the, as the encroachment of financial services on their personal identity. Um, it appeals to people because it, it, it's anonymous, um, it allows them to engage in all sorts of transactions, some of them legitimate, some of them less so, um, without their identity being known. But on the other hand, uh, those that support Bitcoin are kind of obsessed um, with identity. Uh, they, the blockchain is a kind of a perfect form of memory, a perfect tool uh, that, that enables them to live in a, in a secure well, so I, I don't think Bitcoin is quite separate from the issue of identity um, in the way uh, that some of the supporters believe. What it is, um, is a techno-utopia. That's uh, how, how it, uh, uh, it appeals to people. And actually, paradoxically, of, of, of all the three currencies I've talked about, I think Bitcoin is arguably the currency with the strongest sense of collective identity around it. It's, it's, it's based around these four principles. It should be state-free, inflation-free, trust-free and debt-free. And Bitcoiners themselves are incredibly active members of a community with very clear libertarian beliefs, some of them quite absurd, but here's an example of two. Um, it's also highly regressive. It's based around a theory of money, which is very much similar to gold. Um, it also has a very discernible uh, structure. Uh, the production of Bitcoin is organized uh, around these uh, mining pools. It also, of course, has uh, a huge concentration of wealth, which resembles uh, the mainstream financial system. And last but not least, over 95% of Bitcoiners are men. Uh, so what we have here is a very clear uh, sense of collective identity and social structure around the one form of currency, in fact, of the three I've mentioned that one would assume does not have a strong sense of collective identity and social structure, which I find kind of paradoxical and intriguing. Um, to conclude, I think that while identity clearly matters to money, uh, in sociological terms, it's difficult to pin down and almost impossible to measure. In the case of the euro, identity is increasingly being used, as I've already said, as a post hoc construction to justify why the euro may fail. Uh, but I don't think it's had a causal role in that failure, if it goes on to fail. Uh, equally, I wouldn't describe positive money 
as nationalistic, even though it's all about monetary sovereignty. I don't think it has anything to do with identity. Uh, which brings me back to my original point, and I'll finish and hand over, over to Dave. Money is a social practice sustained by social obligations in all sorts of interesting ways. These do interact with identity, but I don't think identity is fundamentally important to them. If anything, money doesn't transform identity in the collective sense any more than it corrodes it. It tends to affor- affirm what already exists. Um, the we of money, the we of the true currency here, um, is enormously fluid, it's malleable, and it's contingent. Thank you. Thank you, <coughs> David, we saved the, le- the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> I did think I knew what I was going to say until everybody else started talking, and now I've had to quickly re... I don't like being on panels with smart people, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> um, I was too scared to say anything, actually, because they gave us this instruction list on what to do in the event of disorder. <laughs> which, um, oh, yeah, I love this, yes. I find that slightly destabilising. So, uh, they're a tough crowd, are they, at LSE? No, it's just deeply embedded in our history. Oh, right. It was fun in the 60s. <laughs> so, um, anyway, if disorder breaks out, I will hand this to you to execute the, uh, the secret and hidden instructions uh, about it. Um, I think I'd, I think I'd like to, um, uh, in order to make another set of points, um, and my colours are pretty much nailed to the mast because, as Nigel mentioned, I published a book last year called Identity is the New Money, so I, I can hardly argue out of that. Um, but I want to make, it to, to, for the purposes of adding to the discussion, I want, I want to make a slightly... Uh, different point to, to begin with. I, I'm here as the sort of technologist of the, of the group, and I want to make a point about the long-term relationship between technology and money to add to the debate, because I actually think, I actually think the uh, dovetailing of that with Nigel's work I think does give us some insights into where money's going, which is, of course, the thing I'm, I'm interested in. So the history of the technology of money is essentially a history of decentralisation and the lessening of, of centralised power. So if we start with the coins um, from Tom's point, uh, you know, if we start the conventional place to start, which is, of course, the electron coins in Lydia, you know, coins were struck by the king. You know, they were, they were, they were a representation of the monarch's power. I should say, like, um, there's a slightly different Anglo-Saxon tradition as opposed to the continental tradition. So in, in early Anglo-Saxon times, coins were struck, and the important thing was actually the mint. It was the mint signal. So, so our trust in the Anglo-Saxon model was in the mint. You wanted a good quality mint, that would. whereas in the, in the continental model, it was more to do with the king's head, who was on it. It was a slight distraction. But anyway, the point is, it was the king's head stamped on it, and it was the king's... By the time you get to sort of medieval, I mean, we'll pick on London because we're sitting here. By the time you get to medieval London, we move into the era. I mean, the, the London has always been a centre of innovation in financial technology. Um, shortly after the Norman invasion, so I should say for our foreign visitors, we're a naturally conservative people. So a talk about anything usually starts with the phrase shortly after the Norman invasion. That's, where we're, <laughs> that's our anchor point. <clears throat> There was a superb new technology for money that was invented, um, and it worked like this. Uh, I'm the king, right? 
Nigel is uh, responsible for collecting the taxes in some area, let's say Nottingham. He's the Sheriff of Nottingham, okay? So we agree, well, Sheriff of Nottingham, you need to... I, I get £10 worth of taxes from Nottingham. Look, it says here in the Doomsday Book, I can look it right up. We were illiterate culture at that level. Uh, <clears throat> so we agree that Nigel's going to give me £10. And the way we agreed that was by making notches in a wooden stick, which is called a tally stick. And we made notches in this stick, and those notches represented the £10. And then we split the stick down the middle, and I keep, I'm the king, I keep one half of the stick, and Nigel keeps the other half of the stick. And when Nigel comes back with his tax money for the tallying up, we put the two bits together, and if he's changed any of the notches, I can see right away. So there we have a cheap technology, high security... We can easily both understand it worked. The sticks were small and transportable. And now we've changed money into notches on a stick, and it works really well. And that was for the purposes of collecting taxes. But within a very short time in London, <coughs> kings by and large could never wait for the money. Right? So we've just agreed Nigel's going to give me £10 next year. But I want to invade Scotland now. I can't wait until next year. I want to quell the rebellious Scots... Right, it's still in the National Anthem, by the way. It's not racist, you're allowed to say it. I want to quell the rebellious Scots right now. I don't want to wait until next year. So what I do is I take my half of the tally stick, which is for £10 that Nigel's going to bring in next year, and I sell it to merchants in London. And the merchants will buy that tally because it's easier to carry that tally around than to carry £10 around, right? And very rapidly in the London money market you had a very sophisticated discounting of the tallies in time and space, and you had a fully functioning money market by the end of the 12th century in London. So a technology which was used for record-keeping became a kind of money, and merchants would buy and sell these sticks and trade them around. You go forward to, you go forward to the... You're referring to the Bank of England and Hogarth and so on, and you see a similar kind of thing. You have a new technology comes along, printing and engraving and whatever, and now you can print these notes. They were never printed to go into circulation as a medium of exchange. The Bank of England, the Bank of England wasn't founded to provide money for the, the... The Bank of England was founded in order to fund a war against France, right? I'm not saying it wasn't for a good cause. I'm just saying it wasn't, for, it wasn't in order to create a circulating medium of exchange. And what happened was the Bank of England notes, once again, were taken up by the merchant classes and used as a way of uh, exchanging money without having to carry loads of coins around, which was just as well, because there weren't any coins, because the government wasn't striking enough of them to... because they weren't managing the shift from the sort of feudal to the moneyed economy. And this was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, although, of course, at the time, they didn't know it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But actually, there were no coins to play wages, but that's a, that's a separate issue. So once again, you had the new technology come along. It was used essentially for debt, and then it became... Uh, you know. Now, if you follow that kind of logic, which I urge you to, if you follow that kind of logic, that says, round about now, so round about 400 years later, we should be seeing a new kind of technology, which is being used for debt, but actually is going to end up going into circulation as a kind of money. And that's not Bitcoin. And that's why I come to a slightly different conclusion from Nigel. Around that. Bitcoin is fun and interesting, exciting, and all those kind of things. And um, I am as uncomfortable as he is with this bizarre pseudo-libertarian gold cult that's grown up around it. There's something very reactionary and bizarre about that. Um, but it doesn't matter, because Bitcoin isn't that thing. I don't think we've seen... 
the substitute yet. So in other words, the new technology, the internet and mobile phones and cryptography and whatever, are going to be used for something which is primarily instituted because of debt, but it's going to end up going into circulation as money. What does that mean? Well, I would say there are three plausible candidates uh, for that, and I'll just say them very quickly. So there's a Hayekian theory, which would say bank debt would directly substitute for money. In those. So in other, as in the case that we're all very familiar with, I'm sure, the case of uh, Scotland before the egregious extension of the Bank of England Act in 1844, when the banks in Scotland were allowed to competitively issue their own notes. I should say, by the way, all of the innovations that we associate with modern banking, overdrafts and current accounts and checkbooks, all date to that <coughs> very specific time, when the banks had to compete with each other to keep the value of their money up. Uh, so you could have a situation where regulated financial institutions produce new forms of money which are effectively cryptography and they go into circulation. A second possibility, which for historical reasons I'll label the de Bono uh, strand of thinking, says actually um, private companies, could, and actually there's a, there are reasonable grounds for thinking that's true. The debt of private companies, and I know Isabella has written about this more than once, the debt of private companies, if it could be monetized cryptographically in that way and go into circulation and be easy exchange, then the debt of private companies will become a form of money which substitutes. And actually, if I was living in a great many countries, I'd rather have the debt of you know, Vodafone in my pocket than my own government or, or, or so on. So I'm thinking about Greece. Those pictures you showed of the bridges, I did, if you Google it, there were some hilarious versions of the Euro banknotes that were being twittered around the internet last week. Some, you know those, I don't know if you saw those bridges... They had little people walking across them and stuff mm. like that. So this Greek artist has done these banknotes, but on his ones, the little people are throwing themselves off the bridge and hang, <laughs> hanging themselves from the arches and fleeing through the... I love them. They're, they're beautiful. So, so the debt of private companies could substitute, and I think that's a reasonable theory. But the third one, and this is where I think, I think, my, think my thinking does come together with Nigel's, because I think identity has such a role to play in this, mm. is actually it could well be communities that are... So the debt of communities could well become the debt that becomes monetized right. and goes into circulation. And, and, and those communities might be quite small, down to the level of the individual. I agree with that. But you can sort of see a situation where... I mean, I might argue with Izzy, for example. I say, well... You know, the euro doesn't work because, it, you know, Greece doesn't have the same economy as Germany. I agree. And, in fact, it can never work because of those. Uh, well, that's true of sterling, isn't it? I mean, London doesn't have the same economy as Middlesbrough. Why are they yoked exactly. under the same currency, which is suboptimal for both of them? Mm -hmm. Letting London have its own money would, would, would be... So, so I, you know, so there are different... You know, the cities, I tend to subscribe to the Jane Jacobs cities and the wealth of nations kind of theory, the idea of the C50, the 50 biggest cities, and their hinterlands being the economies. I think there are certain kinds of communities, especially diaspora communities. You could have an Islamic, Edina, for example. which, uh, um, And then there are local communities in the sort of traditional sense, like the Bristol Plan and so on. Although I would say, when I say community, I'm using it in the modern sense. So I mean virtual as well as yeah. real communities. So... In summary, the history of the technology of money is about decentralization and distribution. It's about using new technologies to monetize different kinds of debt. And if we use that analysis to today, that suggests that new kinds of private debt will be monetized. And my suspicion is 
for a variety of other reasons, that communities might be the optimum uh, issuers of the new money. So that's the technological perspective. Thanks, David. Uh, <clears throat> before we open the floor to questions, I wanted to ask, because I'm bringing it back to identity specifically as a form of access, because when I think of it, identity and identity authentication, it's usually as a form of access to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that perspective, if we go down the road of de-anonymizing money, making it all about identity, are we effectively passporting money in a way that essentially, you know, when I think of identity-heavy rich money, I think of, say, the Second World War and ration books, when you couldn't go to the shops without your papers and your identity saying, I am entitled to five coupons of bread or whatever. So it was about restricting access. No, I I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think we should (laughs) set the bar a little higher than that, because in my head, privacy and anonymity are very different things. I'm very strongly in favour of privacy around financial transactions, but I'm very strongly against anonymity. This is why I don't like coins. <laughs> because, look, look, this is where we are, right? Just to, one, very one quick point, just to illustrate where we are right now. I go down to Heathrow Airport, right? I'm going to New Zealand. I want a prepaid card that I'm going to stick a couple hundred New Zealand dollars on. That took me like 25 minutes to get... They're photocopying my passport, I'm filling out forms, they're texting me things on a... What a nightmare. Meanwhile, if I was rich, I could walk into a bank branch in Switzerland and walk out with 5 million euros in cash in a suitcase, right? So all of this stupid stuff about identifying and managing and whatever is a tax on poor people. It doesn't affect rich people at all. So the way it's done now cannot be right. So I think... Identity, yes, but in a privacy context, which I think there are technological options for to take us forward. Does anyone else have any views on, on the access? What I'm interested in is like identity as access to goods and services. In which that which could be blocked. Sorry? <laughs> which could be blocked. Right, because, you know, that's, that's a perfectly valid point to make. If, 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 if the money has a distinct identity, the person has a distinct identity... <laughs> You can construct this matrix which says you can't use that money to buy that thing, right? So you're a benefit recipient. You can't buy fags, for example. You know, I'm not arguing for that. I'm arguing for privacy, which is a different thing entirely. Um, so why don't we take some questions? Um, does anyone have any questions over there? There's a microphone, I believe. And if you could let us know your name, affiliation, and wait for the stewards to bring the mic to you, <laughs> which you have. William. Uh, good evening. Um, my name is uh, William Wong. I used to be a visiting fellow here, but not anymore. Um, but since meeting Nigel late last year at his uh, wonderful lecture, I've been thinking a lot about money differently. And because I'm um, also a very keen amateur photographer and very active on Instagram, I've been going around asking people not so much about the identity, but I just say, well, we all know what money is, don't we? So what is it then? Then people kind of go blank. Hmm, they really, really thought about it. Then I say, well, we all have cameras and smartphones these days, so all of us have got this really powerful tool to, to document something visually. I say, well, if you have to take a picture, a still image, not video, so no, no long speeches, to represent and express yourself, this is what money means to me. What would it look like? Again, no one has ever come up with something to, wow, this is it. And I struggle and really struggle. I'm doing something about that. And yesterday, I finally had to settle to go into the British Museum 
the, the city money gallery walk around I was none the wiser but I found a banknote issued during the Ming dynasty in uh, 15 no 1352 even that is not really that satisfactory for me I'm just sort of winging it and so to the panel um, if money is an extension of how we see ourselves, because that's the conversation here, identity. We'll do selfies. This is me with a selfie stick. So money's an extension of who we are. How would you express money through a photograph? Just wonder. I mean, one could sort of flip that and say money is an extension of the way, that, at the moment, an extension of the way the state thinks we want to view ourselves. So... When I talk about the the building of identity through imagery, on 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 coins and notes, it, it really is. It it really is defined by that by that issuing authority. I mean, to, just to bring up a, a point that Nigel made about about the euro, and uh, that was one of the things I was I was possibly going to, going to talk about tonight. It was just the the way in which, because as uh, when. Duesenberg, who's the president of the ECB in 2004, said um, the euro has not only separated its role um, uh, from, from that of gold, which is completely incorrect anyway, but <laughs> that it's the first currency to have separated itself from, from the nation state, which was also completely incorrect. Um, but it, it, it did show this conceptual problem that they had when they were deciding what to do with the euro. How do you represent all these fragmented, politically disparate nations that loosely make up this collective geographical entity called Europe and to display that through the imagery on the, on the coins and notes? And the only way that any kind of identity is, 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 is enabled isn't through the, the, the bridges and things that appear on the notes. It's actually through the, the reverse of the... Um, of the coins and just just to conclude my point I just want to draw one comparison between um, the, the franc the, sorry the, the franc the euro um, based on, 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 on the French uh, currency model and that of Greece um, and the, the French euro um, shows sorry the 50 cents shows um, Louis Oscar Rotti's um, famous figure of Le Samousse, the sower, who is uh, Marianne personified as the sower, um, sort of striding across this landscape, scattering seeds. The Greek euro absolutely ignores any semblance to the modern Greek euro and actually decides to reproduce um, a tetradram, an Athenian tetradram of the Athenian Empire of the of the fifth century because it was such a, um, an, an economically problematic model to use the old drachma, um, because it was essentially a failing currency. So it, it really does pose a problem, you know, not, not even how do, we own, how do we view money, but how does the state view money? I can say once a year we, um, we run a Future of Money Design Award for students. You, you can Google it if you like and have a look at it. It's, um, it's cool stuff. Um, I think two, I'm struggling to remember, I think two years ago, one of the winners two years ago was a guy who had the most fantastic idea, which was for selfie money. So his idea was, when you go to the ATM to get some money out, the ATM would take a picture of you, and the money would come out, not with the Queen's face on it, but with your, <laughs> but with your face on it, which I thought was a lovely idea. And his idea was, you see, some people's money would trade vastly above par, 
Whereas for plebs like me, my money would trade at a vast discount. It's based on looks, or is this... Uh, it wouldn't be purely looks. I, you know, I think the camera adds a couple of pounds, frankly. Or something, but, um, uh, so, so that idea of money right down to that, I mean, that's very fascinating to me. Um, and it sounds crazy when you think about it in terms of physical money and notes. And, but actually, when you start talking about digital money and cryptography, the idea that Madonna could issue her own money, which was redeemable for her uh, records. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Her records. I don't know what they <laughs> Tracks. Um, <laughs> but, you see, but you see what I mean. So, so that point... You know, it sounds crazy in physical money, but in digital money, it really isn't. You could have a, you know, this is, you're talking about money that's stored on my mobile phone, not in my wallet. I could have a million different currencies on my mobile phone. I wouldn't really care. Can I cut in there and think about Please. art and money in those ways? Because you're, you're calling attention to the representation of money. So I think this is one of the artists in the exhibition is um, got a currency called the Robin currency, which functions as a currency. And it is, and he kind of jokes that he looks like a kind of dictator on this money. Do you remember? I mean, I'm struggling to remember. But in the civil, wasn't there that guy Boggs who used to go around Boggs, drawing his own? Boggs, Silden, Morales. There's a, yeah, yeah, I mean, Boggs functioned. Boggs what was did interesting. He, do? he drew money. He drew, he drew money, money, but he would never. He yeah, he sold it. He would never allow it to transact as money, because that wouldn't. He wouldn't got into work. trouble a few times, yeah, didn't he? He got, in, he got in trouble in Britain, and now, interestingly, the only way they could get him in Britain was not for counterfeiting, but for copyright. Uh-huh. Right. So, they, so they had to add a new, a new line to the pound note at the time, in the early 80s, to say that you couldn't copyright that money, because it was illegal to copyright it, but not counterfeit it. Because well, again, this, I think this strongly <laughs> illustrates the point, which is, when you're talking about physical money, some of these things sound crazy. When you're talking about electronic money... The ability to add smart contracts to notes and coins, the ability to constrain, you know, these things open up an entirely new vista, which I do believe will drive down to the level of the individual, even if, even if that isn't the... Well, if it does, then, it, then we're in a situation where we all have our own private language. So, I mean, if, if you say money's like a language, then we can't all speak, you know, I can't just speak dot. <laughs> understand me. And, and well, Marshall you know, McLuhan. If I just have Dodd coins and you have Birch coins and he has Hockenheim yeah. coins. You can speak then, in terms of protocols, though. The whole, the whole internet works. Like yeah, but if you're talking about what backs money, then I think it's more problematic. Uh, McLuhan yeah. says they really didn't like that point. <laughs> they really didn't. Look, like it upset everybody. I know, as soon as you said that, the disorder started. They <laughs> Don't worry. They, they, they thought you were Will Self. That's what's, can I, well, can I just that's what's gone wrong. Can I just ask Nikki? Because what I, um, you know, money. We're talking about money as identity. But I, what about the idea that it's a form of um, it helps to legitimise claims? To what degree, in, when we're talking about iconography, for example, and art, does something like genealogy and say, you know, royals and all those portraits of all their, you know, ancestors? That's a form of art and claim because you can here here I am, I'm a royal, and I can show you, look at all these beautiful portraits of me going all the way back to, you know, whenever. Um, there's there's this kind of blockchain effect in that, isn't there? There's this kind of like from the generation to the next gen- generation, there's all this art and iconography and, and also, you know, the British you know, the uh, propaganda side of it as well. Yeah. I mean I think that kind of that question of kind of genealogy and the kind of sovereignty of 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 the sovereign—that's what you're you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and also that kind of the, the imagery used to kind of like over the ages be passed down, like the heirlooms and the idea that this is a claim and and you can't you know you can't fake that. No, <laughs> but I think it doesn't really work like that actually. Like if you think about the dollar, the way in which the dollar was designed, 
or the way in which you can talk about what the way spooky illuminati the spooky, exactly no, that I want to see your exhibition but I, I do want to say one yeah. I, I, I think as a sweeping general point I think art hasn't dealt with money terribly well I'm not entirely sure why but I think sometimes art sees money as base and dirty and tangential yeah. and it doesn't deal with it right? oh, for example for who likes Wolf Hall right we all love Wolf Hall don't we is it just me? Literally. Yeah, no, I love Wolf Hall. We all love Wolf Hall. I haven't heard... Men- I love Wolf Hall. I've watched every episode. I'm addicted to it. I haven't heard it mentioned... Better Call Saul and Wolf Hall are the two things in our household right now. I love Wolf Hall. I haven't heard it mentioned once in Wolf Hall about Henry VIII's outrageous debasement of the coinage. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he he debased the coinage by what three quarters or something was it? Something? Yes, it was vast. He added copper so that actually the, yeah. the coins of Henry are called um, they call them old copper nose because it, it wore away the silver, oh, right. very thin layer of silver on the veneer, so he had a big well, red. Has that been mentioned once in Wolf Hall? No. <laughs> Mastermind by Cromwell. That's my as well, point exactly. Mm. <laughs> I, I would just say that um, just to just to counter that slightly, the, the, if. if one looks at medieval coinage, actually medieval kings in general weren't overly concerned with the propagandist elements of the currency. For example, if you look at medieval portraiture on the coinage, it's pretty basic. And actually, take for example the coinage between Edward I and III, you can't really tell them apart. What they were far more concerned with was, uh, um, as, as Dave brings out the, 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 the quality of, uh, of, the, of the metal content in that and they were very concerned to maintain that high. There's a famous story of Henry I finding out that his coins had been debased by 3% and then he, found, he rounded up all his moneyers and then had them castrated and their hands cut off to make sure they didn't do it again. Um, Any other questions? Oh, who to Robust pick? Robust policies for a, a sensible Should Britain? we take a couple? Uh, let's do here, here... And lady over there. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm an open source journalist. I um, wanted to address David actually because it, it, you raised a really good point about the difference between privacy and anonymity. So the first thing I wanted to do is make sure that doesn't get swept away and we just kind of get caught caught away. So you you can be anonymous without being private. For example, if you're in a crowd of people and you're all wearing the same thing, you're not private, but you are anonymous. But in order to be anonymous, you have to have other people. And this is how things like the dark web, things like Tor and Bitcoin work. They work because other people have the same intention as you. And I wanted to segue, if it's not too much of a a jarring factor, into uh, money as a permission system. The reason Bitcoin works is because there wasn't scarcity in the age of the Internet before. The Internet was too abundant. And it was just a set of protocols, a set of standards and agreements. And looking back at it now, given all the forking that's happened to Bitcoin, you've got all these other altcoins and there's a real sort of land grab for nomenclature. Just the the, the names of these things, there's a huge land grab. What we realise is we had it easy back in the 80s and the 90s because there were only a few people making these key decisions about the QWERTY keyboard and the layout and the ASCII and and all of these kind of things. But I want to get your thoughts on um, how Bitcoin is relevant as a permissions system that allows for digital scarcity. It it allows for things to be finite in in the age of the web, which I think is something we haven't seen. Nigel and I discussed this before, so I, I think, and I can see Bailey up at the back of the room as well, who knows an awful lot about this, and I don't want to bring down the opprobrium of the Bitcoin by getting involved in theological disputes about the one true Bitcoin, Bitcoin and the um, I think the blockchain and distributed consensus and the ability to create unique digital objects is a fundamental breakthrough. I really do believe that. 
I just don't think it has much to do with money. I just mm. don't see it as a, as a, and this is where we get into these arguments because I don't think Bitcoin is a very good kind of money. I think it's going to be a fantastic breakthrough for some other things. And there's a particular strength in that mapping, because it, which we haven't got time to go into, but it links this whole kind of Internet of Things and the linking between the physical and virtual worlds. I agree with that very strongly. I, to me, it just doesn't work as I mean, money. You, know, you wrap it up in, in a very complex language, Chris, but in the end, what you're talking about is the same theory of money as, 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 no, as, but as I, the idea that it's gold. I wasn't talking about you money, know, I was talking about permissions. It's yeah, a permission yeah, system, isn't well, it? Well, you know, in that case... Look, if I, if I have a coin... If I, if I have a coin, to put it crudely, if I have a coin which allows me to drive this car, right, through whatever cryptographic mechanism, then the fa- there must only be one of them, because yes, there's only one exactly. of those cars. They yeah. must, and, and the, the blockchain is a, is a breakthrough in this. The, the yeah. idea that you can have only one of something in the digital money, yeah. world is huge. But in money terms, but just not for money. Talking about yeah. uh, sorry, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't talking about that. Because, because, e- economic, e- why, why are we talking about it on a money panel? <laughs> Well, no, because we're talking about identity. We're talking about permissions. That's yeah. why. Because the blockchain has a much bigger role to play in identity. Than it yeah, it does. Money. But it's money. Na- nature, nature makes economics necessary. And I, I, right. my point was addressing the fact that the internet didn't resemble the physical reality of the world before. Right. Okay. Because you that's can make infinite trying. copies. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, that's, yeah. Okay. That's fine. <clears throat> that's a really interesting point. Thanks. Should we take yeah. Oh, hi. My, my question is for Dave as well. I'm John Harris, by the way. Uh, it's, uh, it's related to that and to uh, privacy and anonymity and identity as well. But first, before I, it's a little bit shorter than uh, the previous question. Though. Um, you should definitely see the Show Me Your Money exhibition, which I saw. I'm uh, desperate to see it. Yeah. Really brilliant exhibition. But yeah, sim- it's a simple question, Dave. Would you ban cash? <laughs> that would put me out of a job, by the way. So please, please no, I, I, I can't collect it then. In fact, more than one of your predecessors has mentioned to me how catastrophic my crackpot theories about getting rid of cash are going to be for the British Museum. If you do, we're because going to bring what, you down. What exactly are you going to put in the? Um, I don't want to ban. I I don't want to ban cash. I I want to make it like drink driving. Yeah. <laughs> so so I don't it, it, using bad. cash using cash. You know, I mean, yes, but the reason people don't drink drive anymore isn't because it's illegal. It's because you just don't do it anymore. There's been a social change against it. And I think when somebody pays with cash in a supermarket, it should, they should feel like that. Like, you know, the, <laughs> the opprobrium of the community. Look, cash, I'll give you one dreary statistic just to illustrate this point, you know. The production of $20 bills in the U.S. is at its lowest level since 1991. Yet the amount of cash in circulation in the U.S. is at its highest level ever, in the form of $100 bills, yeah, exactly. which you can't even use in shops. They have no. You try and pay with a $100 bill in a shop, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Their only use is money laundering, tax evasion, criminal transactions. The reason I'm being taxed up the butt every 31st of January is because a quarter of the economy isn't paying any bloody tax, right? So I think getting rid of cash. Let's set to one side how that might happen. Getting rid of cash with the appropriate privacy layers on top would mean a fairer society. I don't see why I don't see why drug dealers should get away with not paying any tax, right? And bankers and various other people. So I mean, just, I just, I'm not just, I'm not discriminating. I th- I think cash privileges the rich and the unaccountable and the powerful, and I don't so like, and I don't like it. But I don't understand that because so does you know the euro dollar. I mean, that, the idea of, it's not as if when we have virtual money that that's necessarily taxable. Oh, but, but you haven't heard all my crackpot theories about oh, privacy okay. money and how, and how we link it with cryptograph. 
I mean, what I'm in favour is what you might classify as smash-the-glass money, right? You have electronic money, you can send it all around the world, you can do what you like with it, but if something goes wrong, if there's a crime or the police get a warrant or something happens, you can smash the glass and find out where the money went and who it belongs to. It's a crude categorisation. Identity at last resort. Kind of. I just... If you don't have identity, you end up... I, I know this is a bad example, but I said... If you don't have identity, you end up in a vast electronic Somalia. You're just, it's just warlords, you know, and that's what you have in Bitcoin right now. You've got these competing mining pools. The idea that it's decentralised and belongs to the people or whatever is ludicrous. It's not the 1% in Bitcoin, it's the 0.01% in Bitcoin. It's absurd. So I wouldn't ban it. But I would like to make it socially unacceptable. Well, it kind of is increasingly. I insisted on an Ed Miliband-style receipt for the taxi today. So. Can I share an anecdote just on the, on the idea of banning cash? Now <laughs> you're going to make me sound hus- mad. My husband is really into all these apps like Uber and blah, blah, blah. And one of the main problems for me is that because he's always using apps to order everything, he keeps leaving his wallet behind, which means I'm the one that always has to pay for things. <laughs> suddenly he doesn't have a wallet because I didn't even have to put my hand in my pocket. Oops. So, um, I mean, funnily enough, when he got stuck abroad in that scenario, turns out now you can phone up NatWest and they'll just give you a special code and you can hack the cash machine. So, what about that kind of like That's good. mobile money? I, I'm, I'm at the point where I live in a civilised and advanced nation. If I forget my wallet, it doesn't matter. I've got my phone. I can get everything I want in London during the day on my phone. I've got my little Barclay card sticker on the back for riding the bus and the train. I've got my Starbucks app, Uber. I'm absolutely fine without money, except for those bastards at Southwest Trains that, that <laughs> still make you put your chip and pin card in, like it was years ago. So <laughs> I'm fine by that. Hello. Okay, good. Um, hi, I'm Mary Horgan. Um, I'm in the English department at King's College London, uh, writing a PhD on um, money modernism, looking at Ali Smith, a contemporary modernist, and Virginia Woolf, a kind of full-on modernist. Um, so I would disagree um, from my studies that um, art has not dealt well with money. <laughs> um, but Nikki, I was interested you were sort of looking particularly at metaphor and -hmm. language, Um, but then others have talked about Bitcoin, for example, and to me, things like Bitcoin strike me as forms, Mm -hmm. new money forms. So I was wondering sort of where your thinking is in terms of um, the relationship between literature, literary form, and money forms. Um, I'm obviously... Coming from a modernist point of view, coming from a modernist point of view, interesting. Well, I guess I can tell you what I don't think, Mm -hmm. um, and and then we can assume that I think everything else. Um, I think that the idea that um, so you know the kind of new economic criticism, the John Joseph Goo kind of line, Mm -hmm. the, the idea that there was a kind of crisis in money, and that somehow that produced a kind of crisis in representation, mm-hmm. I think that's actually oversimplistic. Mm-hmm. I think that both makes realism a kind of straw, a straw yes. figure here, that mm-hmm. realism is never that crude anyway, mm-hmm. and it also um, <coughs> it suggests this kind of very neat homology between one form of representation and money, which I've got a problem with. So the thing that I'm really working on is 
is the history of the gold standard in the early 70s. Mm. And I'm trying to resist that kind of postmodern notion that you get everywhere from kind of, you know, from Harvey to, to Rotman to, yeah. to, to Mark Taylor, that the, the crisis, that this was really a crisis in representation. I don't think the ending of the gold standard was a crisis in representation. It was a crisis that a new form of money was emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think to see that simply in terms of those kind of postmodern end of reference yeah. is the answer. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I think actually is that genre is really important mm-hmm. and that we have different kinds of genres that do different kinds of things around money. So I'm very interested in what spy fiction does with money, for example, mm-hmm. because the way in which it narrates and relationships between time, relationships to sovereignty, relationships yeah. to knowledge, relationships to trust, mm-hmm. all those things happen in, in all kinds of different genres. So I think I don't take a simple, that simple mimetic line that's been dominant since the 90s. Yeah. But what you get, if you reject that, I think, is you get a kind of, hist- kind of a, an historical mm-hmm. texture of different moments. Sure. But just compare Wolf and Smith, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, so we've got about just over 10 minutes left. Um, as chair, I'm going to enforce... Um, I'm going to act like a tyrant now. Um, Ancient historically, I'm going to ration the questions according to identity. <laughs> so, does anyone have any questions for Nigel specifically? Because I want to hear, like, so I'm just, no questions for Nigel? Um, just oh. uh, a small observation. Um, I'm, um, I'm a Muslim, by the way. I, I work in financial services. I think, in fact, in modern times, we are losing identity. We are becoming so detached from the money. It is becoming so fast, so quick. We are offered no receipts that we forget about uh, engaging with money. So I think this is actually an interesting um, debate and probably one of many to come. So I think at the moment in society, we lose connection and identity in monetary environment. But possibly in the near future, um, the next generations will want to recapture um, that feeling. Um, and it will be reflected in art um, in the future debate. So that's uh-huh. just an but can I just have it entered into the record that I always ask for a receipt? I'm, I'm like Ed Middleband. <laughs> 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 I don't think it's, it's a culture now. I understand. Nigel, sociologically, are we actually distancing ourselves from identity? No, I, I think there's always a dialectical relationship with money, so it, 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 it's two things at once, always. It, it is distant from us in some respects, but we also take it back to ourselves, and we've always done that, we always will. I think that's true of the euro, I think it's true of, you know, there's <coughs> lovely displays in the British Museum of people that draw on banknotes. I mean, these are ways of marking money for ourselves. I like the way the British Museum's set up. On the one side, you've got things that rulers did, on the other side, you've got things that people do, in a sense. Um, so I think that, you know, there is this kind of linear passage away from, from money and identity. I think it's always complex. I think it's always contradictory. And this is why we find it difficult to theorise. Yeah, for me, I think I would call it monetary memory. Is it, is it something can be almost forgotten, something be, can become part of the subconscious and then get revived in a rather weird and unexpected way. I mean, take, take the word shekel. The shekel disappeared from history in AD 135. And then it was revived miraculously in 1980 by the Israeli government, you know, as a, as a, as a way of reintroducing this this notion of of, of a 
of something that represented something far more than just money. So I think the way it survives is by subsuming into, into different things. It becomes part of our vocabulary yes. and it becomes part of our literature and our history. The fact that Shakespeare says, and if my word be sterling yet in England, you know, that, that, is, that is a monetary word that has become transmuted into something, something else. And then those words are eventually reclaimed by... I mean, you know, the, 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 the revival of, of nationalism particularly um, does lead to, I think, a revival of monetary terms. I mean, that's how the modern drachma uh, was reborn, as it were. When the dragon banner once again flutters over an independent Wessex, we're probably going to use the groat. <laughs> your, your actual question for the was... There's someone there, too. Yeah. If, yes, if we could have... Sure. Hello, um, I'm Caitlin, a former anthropology student here. Um, two years later, I've finally got a permanent job. Uh, <laughs> ah, the economy. Um, hey. I was interested in what you think about being able to pay with McLovin, um, the phenomenon of McDonald's in America where you can take a selfie or mm. cuddle someone or call someone and then you <coughs> get a free hamburger. Um, and whether, you know, beyond, is, is there a space for that to be anything more than a, a marketing tactic? Well, it started with Heidi Hinder uh, and her sort of hug and pay thing. And um, I put this, there was a wonderful slide I put up at the lecture I gave in October of the LSE of, of this was at uh, the VNA, right? And so the, the idea was to, in a sense, to try to capture, um, to repersonalize money in, in an electronic age. So the idea would be that, you know, you would, you, would, you would shake hands with someone and that was a way of paying or you would hug them and so on. And, you know, people, you know, I did this and people thought I was completely crackers at the LAC, being a highly rational institution that it is. And then McDonald's, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think for Valentine's announced that they were going to do this. I just think it's really smart. And, you know, it's great marketing. Maybe there's a future in it for, for uh, uh, experimental forms of ways of paying, but the McDonald's point is, is, is obviously, it's a, it's a great advertising campaign. And I just think it's incredible, really, that um, of all companies, McDonald's should grab this idea and run with it. You know, cuddly money, go to McDonald's. It's bizarre. So I think that links with... with uh, so this point about the monetization of private debt as, as a form of currency, I think fits with that kind of thing because those are kinds of money which are, are different, but nonetheless they're money. We, you know, we were talking about this in the, in the... I'll call it the green room before we came in here. So, so for example, if you, if I spend so much money on Amazon every month if you offered to pay me something in an Amazon gift certificate, that effectively is money. It's, it's, it's actually a claim on Amazon's... Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? But it is... And again, it seems crazy in the physical world. You don't want 500 different kinds of money stuffed into your wallet to carry around. But when they're all in your mobile phone, what do you, you, know, you just walk in and buy something, and my mobile phone will have a chat with Starbucks. And Wait a minute, do you take McDonald's? Oh, yeah, we're taking McDonald's, but only at a discount at the moment. Like, I mean, again, this is a level of detail too much. I can't resist. But in, in Walmart at Christmas, they have a, a mart where you can sell your unwanted gift cards. And it's very fascinating to me to see the discounting in time and space of the gift cards, you know, compared to the tallies. You know, some gift cards are worth more than others. You know, so I, th- I think that's absolutely a, 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 one of these things you see at the corner of your eye which does point us in the right direction. I, I can't prove it to you with bar charts and spreadsheets and so on, but I, I genuinely do think that it's an, it's an important indicator but I, I, of where we're going. Contrary to what you've been saying, that came from an artist. 
interestingly. Oh, I, no, my, my, my comments about artists were, so for, by the fact we sponsor the art competition every year, I, I am very interested in what artists have to, because I, I think the technological imagination isn't sufficient to be able to go back to, so I'm very, my point, of, my point about artists was, I didn't say artists never mentioned money, right? <laughs> Remember Oscar Wilde, you know, when bankers get together, the only thing they talk about art, when artists get together, the only thing they talk about is money. I didn't say artists <laughs> never mention money, but I, I'm not sure, you know, I don't see the insight into what money is, and that's kind of where I hope for more from, from that's why I'm desperate to see the, the exhibition now. Um, <laughs> Chap in the middle with the, with the beard. He sort of looks like an artist just on the um, you framed it more in terms of the physical sense of money but I kind of suggest that um, kind of moving forward we're going to be identifying with money more the institutions and the intermediaries and the apps and, and what have you that actually play the role of disintermediating the kind of the money and, and all, the, all what goes on it's actually not the physical sense I, I can imagine a situation where you give your app general policies I mean none of us want to be involved in any of these things it's just a hassle right so if I think, you know what, I don't like McDonald's, I don't want McDonald's money, right? But I do like Starbucks money, or I don't want this money, or I want that money, or whatever. I'll just set some sliders on my phone and let my phone get on with it. I mean, I won't get involved. And that takes you a step further when you then log on and you download policies into your phone. So I can't be bothered to think about any of these things, but I want the UKIP policy. So I'll download the UKIP policy in my phone. And UKIP will work out which sorts of money. Are. I mean, I can see this absolutely becoming. I don't see anything odd about that at all. So you're I, talking about like a um, like a universal translator for money, effectively. Which is odd because that's what money is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it's, as it, as the point made several times, you know, because money means something, you know, to me as an individual, having my Bristol pounds is not the same as having. Uh, sterling. But the big problem, I, whenever I talk about money pluralism, people say even two forms of money would, would be problematic. And to which I argue, and I actually point them in your direction and say, look, there are these technologists I know who, who thinks it's going to all be quite easy with the tech. But it is interesting because you get a lot of pushback when, when you talk about monetary pluralism outside of a room of monetary geeks. I don't know who, you know, whether this is a fair description of the people here. But everybody, but people everybody like in this idea. room, a couple of hundred years ago, everybody in this room would have been they don't have different. Yes, but that's fine. But, you know, that, that's not something that people are used to. And the idea no. that they have to calculate in different different units of account and so forth gives people a headache. Yeah, and, uh, but the economy did function under the pluralism. You know, I'm pro-pluralism. Yeah. But what it would do... But what it would do, if you had more than one, that sense in which you'd have to think about them, they'd have to become visible, and therefore kind of, your confidence in them would, would shake. Yes, yeah. It's not, it's to, you need to not think about it, you That's need right. to not see it's it. If you have more than one, it. it becomes relative. And its, and its security, I think, would be implicitly challenged. As a financial uh, writer, I can't help but think that you're bringing markets into money that way. So yeah. you're effectively... Is it, I but mean, it's I'm, in order, I'm just proposing it's in order, it's in order that to money remove. is a temporal float for, like, no. for society. And if you end up having getting rid of that float and having people interact on a constant basis without any float and, and in, a, in a liquid sense in many, in mm. many areas... You might open, you know, we're taking away that buffer of indi- of uncertainty out of the market. And well, you say you say buffer, but other people might say friction laden intermediary. 
You know, so I might say, actually, if we took away that intermediary, then the parasites in the financial services market wouldn't be able to dip their cup into the river every time it flowed past. If, I'll give you a very simple example. Which, well, but which, they do, don't they? No, but they I, take 1.9% one one every time you pay through PayPal, but you do a 2.7% every time you pay through plastic. There's, there's, you know, that's fair enough. Cut. They abuse that position. But you can't. is it fair to say that they... I mean, they do provide a role. They take risk onto the balance sheet when they create right. that flow. And if you take away that capacity, you see it in the markets, you, you create very very um, brittle markets that are subject to, you know, flash crashes and, mm. you know, so the liquidity becomes Well, let, very, let me give you a thought thin. experiment that will illustrate those points, right? I want to put some money in my pension plan, mm. okay? I don't want to put pounds in because I don't know what on earth pounds are going to be worth right. uh, in the future. So therefore, I have, to put, I have to put baskets of shares in instead, even though I don't know what those are going to be worth either. Okay. Because I have to buy those shares, you have intermediaries and friction and clearing and something like that sort of thing. I don't know what pounds are going to be worth in the future, but I know I need 10 kilowatt hours to heat my house every day or whatever. I don't even know what okay. it is. I know that I need X cubic metres of... So why can't I just put electricity in my pension fund? Sure. Why don't you just make electricity into money? No, that's fine. And I'll just put that... And then you, you do away with these... So all of a sudden you end up with all these different kinds of money. Which but it doesn't matter because the technology manages them and stores them for you. I don't understand how um, <laughs> making private debt into a money is different to what f- to financialising it. No, but my, my point, the money that we have now, pounds and so on, yeah. are, are, are public debt. I mean, it's the government's debt. That, and I'm saying, I think, but are they, with are reasonable... They really, David? I don't think that's Not true. I don't think that's true at all. The money you have, you, we trade... Private, private institutions' uh, liabilities as money. It's private bank debt. I have like deposits at, Bar- uh, at well, oops, Barclays NatWest or any one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Not telling you. Um, and it just so happens that the system has organised to make them fungible. Uh, so I can trade my HSBC liabilities yeah. in exchange no, you for your NatWest but, ones. But ultimately, your pounds are, are, are government debt. No, no, they're pegged. You know, you, to c- you can't redeem your pound for anything other than another pound. Yeah. I can redeem it for. I'm a. I'm a deposit. I am effectively a funder of HSBC, but um, which is bad because of Geneva. But um, that's. I think that's a. I think that's a different point. Anyway, the, the point is that we're actually coming to the end. So yeah. I, I, I'm going to ask you all to sum up. But it's a fun thought experiment. So why don't you sum up? I'll let you start, and we can run oh, through. Uh, oh, well, my point is very quick. Yeah. All, I, all I will say to me is. is is if you're asking me from a technological perspective, I think there is an inexorable arrow in history towards decentralisation. And if you think about what that means now, I think you go from the king to this bargain that was struck with the merchant classes around banking to, to private... Uh, you know, and so I see a kind of... I wouldn't say inevitable, but, but I see that, that's the arrow. Um, if you ask me to sum up, I would say that for every point that we've made tonight, almost without exception, there is an historical precedent. So when we talk about you know, changing between our currencies and uh, the cut that a bank takes, for me that's, that's a man called Jesus walking to a temple um, and overturning the money changers' tables. Well, strictly um, speaking, that was FX trading that was... <laughs> that wasn't capture was the temple tribute, but it was, it was still Roman debt. But anyway, um, so um, and and it's 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 about the way in which people always try and imbue their currency with some kind of meaning, no matter how misguided. And I think I would sum up by 
defending trenchantly the role of art in money, because not only because artists work with money, art functions as a parallel to money, art is a kind of money, it has its own kind of exchange, inflation values. Um, arts, artists um, reproduce money, they work with money in all kinds of different ways, and what they do, I think, um, is they call attention to these processes of meaning, from kind of Warhol to Silda Morales, you know, there's an enormous canon of artists with different kinds of money, and I think that they draw attention to the meanings that we put in it, and allow us to resist it's just being kind of financialised immediately. Andy Warhol did say, I think in about 1969, um, that if you try and spend a $100 bill in the supermarket, they call the manager. <laughs> I just agree with everything that's been said. Um, I, to, to go to echo what Tom said, I think we go, we go around and we go around and we go around with money, and I, I, so I resist uh, notions that we're going in one particular direction. And I, I also think that art's great, and uh, actually, an awful lot of the interest I'm having in my work at the moment is from art schools, art students who want to explore money in all sorts of interesting ways. So perhaps if art's given money about time, that's changing. But I, I don't agree with that. Can I just end by quick saying, I'm very hopeful that we're going to get those, the, the notes that, with the little figures on, um, on display in the British Museum quite soon. So oh, cool. if that happens, then I'll They are about so it. cool. And then you can check out Plutarch's theory of anisoclosis and the concept of how it goes round and round and round. Um, I just want to thank all the speakers and remind the, um, the audience that they will be available outside signing their books um, if, in case any of you want to buy them as well, the books are there as well. Thank you so much.